0: have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn to Genesis 28, as we heard read, our sermon text will be verses 10 through 22. Before we begin, let me pray. O God, who declares your almighty power chiefly in showing us mercy and pity, mercifully grant to us now, in the reading and preaching of your word, such a measure of your grace, that we, running the way of your commandments may obtain Your gracious promises and be made partakers of Your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you remember a time that you felt alone? And I know some of you will inexplicably of your own volition leave electricity and indoor plumbing behind and walk for hours or maybe even days into untamed wilderness and on purpose... Sleep on the ground, you call it camping, I call it lunacy, tomato, tomato. But some of you are far tougher than I am. And you actually get joy from being miles from other people, which, fair enough, and roughing it on your own for a time. That's not the type of isolation I'm talking about, chosen isolation. I mean... Have you ever been in a situation where everything around you made you feel as if you were cut off from and abandoned by everyone else, maybe even by God? Where your circumstances seemed to give no assurance of safety or escape? Where you didn't know if you would make it to the following morning? I know that for some of you, That experience is far more recent than you would like to admit. And the sad reality is that we live in such a trivial, vapid culture, and it has, this meaningless has even pervaded the church, that we refuse to let others express the darkness that closes in on them, probably because we don't want to be reminded of the same reality that we are often trying to. Avoid confronting in our own hearts. And that becomes especially true in those times that we know that at least in part that darkness we experience comes to us because of our own actions and desires bringing us to a desolate place. If you know what I'm talking about, I have good news for you tonight. You're not the only one to experience this. Our passage tonight finds Jacob completely alienated from his family, on the run from a brother that wants to kill him, without a friend to console or protect him, sleeping on the ground in a desolate place, an exile from the land that was supposed to be his inheritance, and all due, at least in part, to his own sin. And it's in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of his sin that God breaks through with glorious light and he gives this assurance. I am with you. I will not forsake you. I will keep my word to you. And upon hearing this wonderful news, Jacob gives the only proper response. He believes the promise and he offers grateful worship to the Lord who sought him. We'll see tonight how the hope of Jacob is the hope of every believer whose help is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And my prayer is that you, like Jacob, will be assured of God's love and that you, like Jacob, will return that love with faith and worship. As we walk through the text We'll have an outline with three points. You can find it in the back of your bulletin. We'll first see a gracious vision, and then a grave veneration, grave as in serious, and then finally a grateful vow. And kids, you'll find the words for you to listen for in their normal place. So let's look first to this gracious vision. If you weren't here with us last week, you'll have to go back and listen to last week's sermon to get the full story. But Jacob is on the run. At his mother Rebecca's goading, he lied to his father Isaac to get the blessing that Isaac was trying to give to the older son Esau. And once Esau found out what happened, he set his mind to kill Jacob. So Rebekah convinced Isaac to send Jacob to her relatives 500 miles away to let things blow over and also to seek a wife. That's where our text begins, verse 10. Where Moses writes, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Isaac had set up camp at the south end of the promised land, but Jacob was running north. He was headed back to the place where his grandfather Abraham had begun his journey well over a century earlier. Isaac had sent Jacob off with the blessing of Abraham, but by all appearances, he's going in reverse. He's leaving the promised land to go back to square one. And as he goes, Jacob has to cross the whole promised land as he flees, step by step, seeing everything that has been promised to him, but probably wondering how it would belong to him as he leaves it all behind. But notice also the parallel Between his journey and his grandfather Abraham's, just like Abraham, Jacob is leaving his country and his father's tent, and when he least expects it, he's going to find himself in the place that God would show him. After what was probably something like three days' journey, around 50 miles, Jacob has to stop. And this is obviously not a pre planned stop. The text says that night caught up to him, so he was forced to sleep out under the stars. But while this place was nowhere special to Jacob, he simply happened upon it. Moses highlights that this is a significant location. He calls it the place three times in one verse, verse 11. What place? We'll have to read on to find out. But it's no coincidence that at this point, Jacob is geographically right in the heart of the promised land. So he settles down, and he selects a stone to put under, or more probably behind his head, and he drifts off to sleep. And here, the marvelous Sovereign mercy of God breaks through the dark of night and reaches his beloved child in the midst of desperate isolation. For the third time in Genesis, God speaks through a dream. And for the first time, the Lord speaks directly to Jacob. And in this dream, in this vision, Jacob sees a ladder or a staircase that reaches from heaven to earth. And while the term here is different, the description of the latter should call to mind the unfinished tower at Babel back in Genesis 11. There, remember, the hordes of the people of the glorious city of Babel attempted to reach heaven by their own efforts, by building a ziggurat, having a monument to their glory and their self-righteousness. And the Lord had visited them, but he had visited them in judgment to put an end to their self-worship and to scatter them abroad. But here, in the middle of nowhere, the Lord looks down and sees one lonely sinner at the end of himself. A sinner whose attempts to grab the blessing of heaven have left him destitute and desolate. And here the Lord himself extends the ladder out of heaven, making the way to Jacob. And Jacob's physical reality here is the spiritual reality of every man and woman and boy and girl in their sin. I fear that some of you might think that you are at peace with God when you have no idea how spiritually bankrupt you are. None of us have anything in ourselves to commend ourselves to God. To become a member of this church, you actually must affirm that you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, except in His sovereign mercy. And it is so easy in our prosperous, comfortable lives to spend 80 years without realizing how spiritually needy we are because of our sin. So I cannot let you leave here tonight without telling you, you will not enter eternal life with God apart from acknowledging your utter lack of goodness and throwing yourself completely on His grace to bring you out of darkness into light. You can't build a ladder to reach heaven. The only way there is the way that the Lord makes. And that's why I have prayed with and for some of you for your children that have walked away from the faith. That they would see nothing but misery until they see their need of the mercy of the Lord and repent, turning to Him in faith. Sometimes the Lord must bring us to the end of ourselves to get our attention And to wake us from our spiritual slumber. But what of those of you who know all too well your spiritual need? And the circumstances around you only serve to confirm that fact. What about those who like Jacob have received the promise of blessing. And yet you find yourself sleeping under what seems to be a closed heaven. Look closer at this ladder, this staircase. On it there are angels descending from heaven and ascending back again. They go down from the presence of the Lord. They are sent to earth to execute His will. And they go up from the earth reporting what they've seen there. Scripture tells us that the angels are ministering spirits of God. And the Lord uses them for the good of those who love Him. So here the Lord looks And sees Jacob alone, exhausted from his journey. And he sends angels so that Jacob would have assurance and refreshment. And dear, beloved children of God, the Lord sees you. He sees you, weary mother who cannot sleep. And he sends his angels telling them, go, bring her strength and comfort. He sees you, faithful brother, fighting the same temptation and the same besetting sin again, and he tells his angels, go, bring assurance that my power is sufficient for him and that my way is better than temporary sinful pleasure. He sees you, lonely Christians, and he tells his angels, go so that they know that I'm with them and will, I will not leave them as orphans. He sees the wicked rulers of earth, and he tells his angels, go and thwart their plans and stop them from harming my people. And these heavenly messengers come, and they fulfill their task, and they return ready for another command in continual procession, up and down from heaven to earth, never ceasing, and all for God's glory and our good. And we are none the wiser. Jacob had heard from his earthly father that God would bless him. And now his heavenly father confirms that word that he had heard with a sign to bolster his weak and weary soul. And how can I be so confident that this ladder that Jacob sees is not just for him, but that it's meant to encourage you and me as well? Well, I can say it on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we heard it in our New Testament reading. Jesus declared that the prospective disciple Nathanael was a true Israelite in whom there was no deceit. A reference back to Jacob, the deceiver, whose name was later changed to Israel. And then Jesus amazed Nathanael with his supernatural insights. But Jesus says his disciples will see things far more amazing than that. He declares, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He is the only way from earth to heaven. He's the one who came down from heaven and who ascended there again. And so you cannot reach God through five pillars, or 12 steps, or the corporate ladder, or being a good person or trying your best. Or any other religious means. I can't remember where I first heard this, so just acknowledge this thought's not original with me. But the difference between Christianity and all other religions is that every man-made religion tells you how to make your way to God. But only through Christianity. No, only through Christ does God make the way down to us. He bridges the chasm of our sin. And you don't reach heaven by climbing on that ladder. In fact, Christ is more like a a firefighter pulling dead sinners out of a burning building, carrying them all the way to safety, and breathing life back into them. And if that were not enough, salvation from sin, it's also through Christ that all the blessings and comforts of God come to us, His people. The notes in the Geneva Bible on this passage put it this way. Christ is the ladder whereby God and man are joined together, and by whom the angels minister unto us, all graces by him are given unto us, and we by him ascend into heaven. What Jacob saw was no less than a vision of a type of the promised seed of the woman through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But like all signs from God, the word of God was added to it to explain it and to make it effectual. In the words of John Calvin, visions are useless, like the sacraments, unless God speaks in them. So God himself speaks to Jacob. And we need to notice a few things about what he says. First he says, I am the Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh, the divine covenant name of God I am the one who makes promises and keeps them and then he says Jacob I'm the God of your fathers call to mind the the former promises that I've made so that Jacob you'll have reassurance that I can do what I promise he had told Abraham he would have a son and he did he had promised descendants to Isaac and he did Jacob is proof That God keeps his promises. But also notice, the Lord doesn't offer any rebuke of Jacob's former sins. Because when the law of God has done its work, and it's laid us bare, and it's stripped us of our self-righteousness, then the gospel of God comes along to bring us life and peace and hope. This is the first time Jacob hears God's voice, and it's the voice of grace. And the word of grace that he hears takes the form of a promise. Actually, six unconditional promises that God would do for Jacob. And some of the promises will sound familiar because we've heard them before given to Abraham, given to Isaac. But some of this gracious word is new, and it's tailored specifically for Jacob and his circumstances. The land, one promise, the land where Jacob found himself completely alone on that night would belong to him and his descendants, God says, who would fill it up. And just think about how that promise itself would have assured Jacob in this specific circumstance Here he is, unmarried, cut off from his father's family on a 500-mile journey to look up long-lost relatives in hopes of finding a wife. And unlike the servant who made this journey on Isaac's behalf, he doesn't have ten camels laden with treasure to offer for a bride price. So the possibility of success may have seemed pretty slim. Were it not... For God's assurance that Jacob, like Isaac and Abraham before him, would marry and would have children. So many, in fact, that they would be uncountable, just like the grains of, of dust surrounding Jacob. Because the Lord would see to it. And through the line of Jacob, his offspring, singular, would bring blessing to the entire world. This is one more entry in that litany of promises that find their yes and amen fully and finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that should sound very familiar. In fact, the language here is most similar to what God had told Abraham back in chapter 13 when he just so happened to live in the same area where Jacob found himself this night. The Lord is affirming here what Isaac had spoken when he blessed Jacob by faith. God himself is giving Jacob the blessing of Abraham for him and his offspring after him. And then the Lord goes one step further. Jacob is on his way out of the land that was just promised to him. So God adds specific assurances that go beyond what he had spoken before. First, the the land is too small for the descendants that he has in store for Jacob. So in verse 14, God says, they'll spread out in all directions. God is not only God of the promised land. He is God of the whole world. So even while Jacob is outside of the land, he is not outside of God's reach. Just as his descendants would still be in God's care, even when they spread to the four corners of the globe. And then in verse 15, God gives three very specific guarantees that Jacob's going to need to hold dear. First, he says, the Lord says, he will accompany Jacob no matter where he goes. So while the surrounding pagan tribes all believe their gods were physically restricted to geographical locations, Yahweh is not. He is present with his people. This is the truth that David sings of in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirits? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God would be with Jacob. But that presence, secondly, it's not merely for emotional support. The Lord would be active. As he tells Jacob, he's going to keep or he's going to guard him wherever he goes. This is the first time that Moses writes about the Lord keeping or guarding anything or anyone. And it also foreshadows the benediction that the Lord would command the high priests to give Israel in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. Jacob is no mere servant or tool for God's purposes. He is a cherished possession, a beloved son whom God would preserve in love. And finally God says he will bring Jacob back. Jacob one day will return to the land of blessing and the Lord will not leave him until it is finished. Because when God begins something, he sees it through. And Jacob would need these promises of God. He would need the assurance that God is with him because at times for the rest of his life, it will seem that everyone else is against him. He would need the promises of God's protection because he would have enemies trying to harm him every step of the way. And he would need the assurance during the next two decades that Haran was not his home. He shouldn't become complacent and remain there forever. The Lord isn't going to remove difficulty from Jacob's life, but he would be with him every step of the way and would finally one day bring Jacob back home to this land. And beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the same promises and the same need to hear them. We have the promise of God with us because the eternal word of God took on flesh and tabernacled among us. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit To dwell within us. If you belong to the Lord Jesus. Then he is with you. In fact he cried out. My God my God. Why have you forsaken me? And he did it on your behalf. So that you could have the promise from God. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. He is with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. And he is with us. To protect us, we have true enemies that seek the destruction of our souls. And the nearest of these is our own sinful flesh. But they are no match for the God who guards and keeps us. He is able to keep that which has been committed to Him until the last day. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Christian, he will bring you into his eternal rest. Because just as Jacob looked beyond the physical land, which was a shadow of eternity, so must we. So those of you who right now are suffering and doubting that this could be true, God be with you. The promise to Jacob is the promise to Abraham, and it is your promise in Christ. So there we have the gracious vision. Now let's see how Jacob responds. First, considering his his grave veneration. When he wakes up, Jacob's response is interesting. You might think that hearing this promise, he would be lighthearted and jovial, But what does Moses say? He says he was afraid. He had been in the presence of the Lord and not known it. And when it was revealed to him, it shook him. He was overcome with awe, along with an awareness of his own unworthiness to stand before the Lord. His fear here is the same as Isaiah's, when that prophet had a vision of the thrice-holy God in his temple. And like the men who would lead his descendants out of Egypt into the promised land, Moses and Joshua, this encounter with God led Jacob to recognize the place as holy ground. Not because the location itself was important, but because the holiness of God emanates from him and it makes everything that he touches holy. So in honor of this, Jacob takes the stone that was at his head and he sets it up and he pours oil on it as an act of consecration to remember how God had revealed himself there, as a reminder to himself and as a testimony to others. He sees that this place is awesome, calling it Beth El, the house of God. And this place would later be a significant place of worship for Jacob and for the people of Israel, which is why Moses calls it the place. And because he saw heaven opened there, Jacob calls it the gate of heaven. You might remember that was the original meaning of the term Babel before the Lord, through Moses, reinterpreted it to commemorate his judgment and the confusion of their language. But it's here. Not in that city. It's here in a nondescript place with no one else around. This is the place that God chose to break through from heaven and earth, heaven to earth, and to reveal himself. He is completely independent of human ingenuity and effort. He is omnipotent, infinite, holy, and righteous. He is a God to be feared, and the place that He shows up is awesome. So I think it's worth asking, do you fear God? If you don't know Christ, the shape that that fear should take is that of a criminal before a judge. Your unrighteousness before His holiness should cause you to fear for your life. You can only escape your sin by throwing yourself on His mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do, He will hide you in the very same perfect righteousness that would cause you to fear in the first place. But if you do belong to Him, there's still a place for proper fear. Not in the sense of terror, but of of awe and of reverence. Encountering God is no casual thing. Being in the presence of the Lord of heaven and earth is the most serious and weighty place we could possibly find ourselves. And that is exactly where we find ourselves right now. Yes, God is omnipresent, He's everywhere. But when we gather in His name and we hear His call to worship and we pray that He would meet with us, it doesn't matter whether we're in this room. Or, Lord willing, one day a building that we own ourselves. Or at Blowing Springs. Or in the Saunders living room. No matter the physical location, when God meets his people in corporate worship by his spirit, he lifts his people up so that we are right now in the very throne room of heaven. You right now are on holy ground. And read the second half of Hebrews 12. And you'll see, it ends with a call to worship God with reverence and awe. That should be our response when we're in His presence. He is a consuming fire, so we dare not enter into worship flippantly or casually. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthian church, if an unbeliever happens to stumble into church, he ought to fall on his face in recognition of the weightiness that is happening. So while we don't come in here sullen or depressed, we ought to worship in a manner that communicates the proper fear of God. And If you treat corporate worship casually or something optional for your life, I wonder if you've ever truly been confronted with his holy presence in the first place. So may we, like Jacob, worship with reverence and awe. So finally, Jacob consecrates not only the place, but his own life in making a grateful vow. And there's, I'll admit, there's probably a lot of room for misunderstanding here. First, because we live in a culture where a man's word is not his bond. And so even if vows are made, they're broken all the time. The Westminster Confession has an entire chapter on the subject of lawful oaths and vows, And Lord willing, we're going to cover that in Sunday school at one point. But vows are solemn and proper acts of worship. And we ought never to enter into them flippantly. They are promises made to the very God that we must fear. And he will hold us to our word. So Jacob is serious in making this vow. And another difficulty that we run into is the language of the vow is a little tricky to translate. In fact, in most English translations, it almost comes off as if Jacob is bargaining with God. sounds like he says, if God will do this, then I'll serve him. It could almost sound as if Jacob is doubting God's word and waiting for him to prove it before he submits himself to him. But a better understanding, both grammatically and theologically, is that Jacob is acting in faith on these promises. So Jacob's vow should read something like this. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace and the Lord shall be my God then this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me I will give a full tenth to you. God said he would do these things. So when he does Jacob returned and Jacob returns to the land Jacob promises that he will again worship at this place and he will tithe on everything that the Lord gives him. This is not a negotiation. If anything, this is Jacob's sinner's prayer where he's responding to the gospel preached to him in the vision by believing it and by surrendering his life to the Lord. We need to see two things about this vow before we consider applications for us. First, Jacob here, he models contentment and proper prayer. His vow doesn't start, if God makes me rich. No, he says, if the Lord keeps his word to be with me, providing my daily needs, and does indeed bring me back in peace, as he has said, then I will worship. Jacob here is seeking what we ask every single week in the Lord's prayer. He is asking that the Lord would give him his daily bread. And yet he would receive so much more. Not to spoil the future sermons, but as the church father Jerome points out, he prayed only for things necessary, yet 20 years afterwards he returned to the land of Canaan, rich in substance and richer still in children. And then the second thing we need to see. Jacob Jacob continues the principle of the tithe. Remember, Abraham had done this in his encounter with Melchizedek. And Jacob does it here with the Lord. But again, as he does so, it's not an attempt to receive more blessing. He's not sowing a seed of money so that God will give him more money. Instead, in grateful recognition that all that he has and all that he ever will have comes from God's hand, his purpose is to retor- return a portion of it to demonstrate his thankfulness. In the words of Gordon Wyndham. Here he gave all he had, the stone and the oil, and promised to give a tenth of all his future income when his affairs improved. So the picture of Jacob at the end of this chapter is that he's already started to be transformed from a grabber to a giver as the Lord sanctifies him. Consider the words of the church father, Chrysostom. See the good man's gratitude. In making his request, Jacob did not bring himself to ask for anything lavish, just bread and clothing. On the other hand, he promised to the Lord what lay within his power, realizing God's generosity in giving and the fact that he surpasses our expectations in rewarding us. So two quick takeaways for us as we close. First, has the Lord made you content so that you can honestly pray for your daily bread? Do you believe the words of Paul? Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If that doesn't describe you, then listen to the warning he gives that follows that up. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So brothers and sisters, may we never fall into this snare. But instead, let us learn to be content with God's providence. And then finally, has the grace of God so transformed you That you return a portion of all that he gives to you materially in an act of worship, offering it back to him? Scriptures don't tell us, and I can't tell you a specific amount of money that you have to give away to be faithful. But they do teach us that we ought to give and we ought to do it cheerfully. So if you do not, the problem is not with your bank account, it's with your heart where you need to be reminded of all the grace that God has shown you so that you may show gratitude to him. My prayer for all of us is that we, like Jacob, may encounter the true and living God in the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that as we do, and as he lifts us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we may also respond with reverent praise, praise, And grateful worship. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your grace poured out on us. Thank you that you have sought us in our exile of sin when we were alone and alienated, strangers to you and to your covenants, and that through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have brought us into your family and made us promises that you will save us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you will bring us into the eternal rest of your salvation. Lord, grant faith to any who have not placed faith in that offer. Strengthen the faith of those who have believed that promise and make us all reverent, obedient worshipers of you in all the different ways that you call us to do. By your spirit, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.